I'm Renee Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. Make sure that you like and subscribe to our weekly sermons so that you don't miss what is happening here at Bethel Austin. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. And most of all, we pray that you would have an encounter with the living God today. Amen. Amen. Stay standing with me. I just talked about the heart and ministry of, of this man, but I've watched him uh, for many years, studied him even, been, come through Bethel many times, and just watched the anointing operate, but to get to spend even a closer time with him and just the humility and love in his heart and the way he cares for the individual, my, uh, my admiration has just grown even more. Can you just join in welcoming Dr. Randy Clark as he comes to share with us one more time this morning. My t text is from the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew, and it's uh, the story of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and uh, him asking the crowd to decide which one they want him to release to them. As the custom was, he would release one prisoner at this time of the feast. And they had a choice between Barabbas, who was, um, we would call Barabbas today, a terrorist. And that would be the perfect term to capture who he really was. Um, you got a, a person who takes life and a person who gives life. A person who destroys and a person that creates. You got a choice between a hater and a lover. You got a choice between a terrible man and a man that's God. The God man, Jesus Christ. There probably wasn't over two or three hundred people max at that time that had gathered there. That would be by far the largest crowd. It was done secretly through the night because they were afraid of the crowds. And I want to focus this morning on understanding the gospel that's connected to the questions Pilate asked. And I know that many of you, most of you, are already followers of Jesus Christ. And so for those who aren't or those who have um, compromised your covenant relationship with God, um, he is the one who brings about forgiveness. But for those of you who say, man, I'm walking with the Lord, him, I am his disciple, I hope that the message will cause you to love him more, appreciate him more, and understand more of what he did for you and even have a better understanding of what the gospel really is. So before I get to the text, I, I just want to share one thing with you. I was at, uh, during my doctoral program, we had about 100 people that were going through the doctoral program. <clears throat> and, and one day, I just feel it really led to stand up and ask all the other pastors and leaders who were there. I, and my question was this. I just want to ask you, when you present the gospel, do you sound like an insurance salesman trying to sell people term insurance? Or, is, or does your gospel sound more like whole life insurance? <clears throat> For some of you who are younger, you haven't got to that point in life yet that you even know what I'm talking about. You know, it, it really, thank you. It really becomes more important when you have children you know, when you're married, you want to make sure they're taken care of. So what is the difference between a gospel that sounds like term insurance and the gospel of whole life insurance? What has to happen for you to benefit from term insurance? You have to die. So all the benefits of term insurance is in the next life. It's really for this life, for your kids and family left behind. What's the difference between that and whole life insurance? In whole life, the benefit starts now while you're alive. Amen. There's benefits that you enjoy in this world. And it's just not about taking care of others and leaving something behind when you die. The point is, so much of our gospel presentations is focused upon when you die. And life eternal versus damnation. Life eternal, John 3.16, or perish. This is the, the choice. 
But Jesus died for more than that. That's important. That's extremely important. You say that's most important. But for a lot of people in our culture, in our society today, they're not even sure about life after death. And, and they just want to say, well, tell me something that would benefit my life while I'm alive. And I just want you to know that there are benefits. The gospel is for this life and the next life. He is our good shepherd, and I like the song you're singing, but, you know, it said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's the good shepherd that leads us, but as we follow him, if we begin to go astray, his sheepdogs, <laughs> goodness and mercy goes after us to bring us back in following the good shepherd to the, to the place of green pastures and still waters. So the two questions we're thinking, uh, considering and want you to consider is what, the first question he asked them, which one do you want me to deliver to you, Jesus or Barabbas? Second question after they've said decided on Barabbas is this, why? Why does he have to be crucified? Why do you want me to crucify him? Why? What crime has he committed? No crime worthy of crucifixion, according to the Roman law. It was a bogus trial. So why? That second question, I think if I can help, in the few, little time we have, if I can help you understand the why Jesus died, then anyone who's here who's not a follower, I think will want to become a follower. And every one of you who are followers, any, any of you that you're a follower of Jesus, It'll help you to be able to share your faith with others because you'll have more than one thing that Jesus does for you. I wrote a book. Um, this is my daughter's favorite sermon, Seven Reasons Jesus Had to Die. I never get past three or four. <clears throat> but anyway, I, often when I go, I know, I'll say, here's the seven reasons, and just, I get to develop maybe three, four max. Uh, so I, I wrote a book called Destined for the Cross several years ago. And because I realized that I had a lot of books on healing and, and a lot of books on the gifts and things like that, but I didn't have a book that really focused on Jesus and the cross. So I, I, I called it Destined for the Cross. As I got into it, I don't, I don't think I spent more time on any book I've ever written as that one because the depth of understanding of all the reasons why Jesus had to die it just blew me away. So I ended up 16 reasons Jesus had to die and I even allude to, well, there's this other guy. He's got like 70-some-odd reasons or whatever. <clears throat> it's, 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 it's amazing. So here are the three reasons I want to talk about, or four reasons if I get time. Jesus had to die that we could be delivered from bondage. Habits, addictions, demons. Jesus had to die that to become uh, our deliverer and to release into this life, not just when we die, but a power that's literally able to set us free from what we can't set ourselves free from. Secondly, Jesus had to die that we could be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but reconciled to God. Jesus, thirdly, had to die that we could be Filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had to die, number four, that we could be healed. Now, I want to show you, this is so important to understand it, that God wanted the people of God to understand the, the fullness of the death of Jesus Christ so much that he made two of the most important feast days related to point to Jesus. They're, they're a type that he's the antitype. This feast is literally talking about the one that's going to come that's a fulfillment of Passover. He's the lamb that's slain before the foundation of the world. Not one bone of his body is to be broken. And when they came to break Jesus' legs, they didn't break one because he had already died. He was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper became a fulfillment of, of the, what was the greatest thing in the New Covenant for what was the greatest thing in the Old Covenant. Passover was the greatest thing in the Old Covenant. And the Lord's Supper, the cross, is the greatest thing in the New Covenant. He had to 
died because he was also the fulfillment of the two goats that were brought forward on the great day of uh, Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. And they, they point to him. He's the fulfillment of that day. He would be the basis of justification. The high priest would put his hand on one goat and then cut its throat, take its blood. This is Jesus. This is the one who is our, the Bible says, Paul said, he is our justification. As well, he, he is our sanctification. He is our righteousness. And he is the fulfillment of that type. He also is actually the high priest himself who now intercedes for us and by his blood has gone into the holy of holies in the heavenly realm that this is just a type of. Interceding for us. But he's also the second goat where they came out afterwards and put his hand on the head of the second goat and they led it away outside the camp bearing the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, purposely played on that term from Leviticus, they led this scapegoat. Yes, that's what it's called. Where we get the word scapegoat from this passage. Bearing the sins of the people away out into the wilderness. So the writer of Hebrews said, and so they led Jesus outside the camp to be crucified. So they led Jesus as our scapegoat who bore our sins outside the camp. So we see in these two major holidays of the Jewish people, every year they had to perpetually uh, have Passover, have the Day of Atonement. They also had uh, the Tabernacles, another great holiday during the year. And Jesus in John 7, 37, sees himself as the fulfillment of this other great holiday. And they had a time where... Um, on, it says, on that last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he talks about out of his belly would flow these rivers of living water. That's why I, I drink San Pellegrino. I, I think living water, not dead water. It's, it's also why I like coffee and cold drinks. Because he said, if it's lukewarm, you spew it out of your mouth. <laughs> but seriously, on this issue about the living water, I just learned this in the last couple of years, um, this one insight. They would go down and they would take water from this fountain. And this was the most joyous occasion of all in the Jewish year of celebration. It'd be the time when they'd light the lights of the candelabra and you'd be able to see it throughout Jerusalem. And, and once again saying, I am the light of the world. He, and it, it, it was the time of coming back, bringing us with this elaborate dancing, laughing joy as they were coming to pour out the water. And at that very moment, Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. What was this speaking about? John tells us the fulfillment of this type. What does this holiday, this Jewish holiday represent that Jesus fulfilled in his death? And really had to fulfill in his death because it couldn't happen. Because John said in verse 39, um, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Uh, when I went to the Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I had one of the greatest biblical commentators in the Baptist denomination on John. I had him for several classes, uh, Dr. George R. Beasley Murray. I love, I even took the class, but I didn't need it. I just audited it because he was such an amazing teacher. He said, you have to understand something. This word glorified in John's gospel has got a special meaning. What did John mean? He had not yet been glorified. To be glorified in John's gospel is involved in when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That's just not preaching about him. He's literally saying, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all men unto me. I'm going to be glorified. The spirit cannot be given until I am glorified. John was saying that about him. And, and so what did, what did glorify, being glorified mean? It meant, first of all, he's lifted up on the cross in death. Lifted up from the grave in resurrection. 
But the spirit still can't be given until he's lifted up to the father's right hand in the fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament. And from that place, he then fulfills the promises of Ezekiel and Jeremiah of a new covenant that's different from the old covenant because the laws are just not going to be written on tablets of stone. They're going to be written on your heart. And there's going to be this greater covenant because the spirit of God is now going to be able to be poured out upon everybody. And what Moses had said in Numbers eleven seventeen comes to pass. Would to God that all of God's people were prophets or could prophesy. And we can by the prophetic spirit. So these are some of the things that reasons why when answering the question, why did Jesus have to die? All the Jewish people should have been able to know is just look at our feast. God wanted us to understand the death of Jesus so clearly that he focused almost every one of the major feasts is pointing to him in his role as deliverer, forgiver, healer and baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Which one do you want me to release to you, he asked. I want to ask the, is this live stream today? Okay, I want to ask you, and I'm going to ask the bigger audience on, on live stream, which one do you want me to release to you? Between. You've got a Barabbas. It's the devil and his demons. And you've got Jesus still today. That's the choice. Did you know that I used to, when I was a kid, would read about it and say, how could they reject Jesus? But we're more culpable than they are. Think about this. They had seen some of his miracles. That crowd that rejected Jesus had seen some of his miracles. Maybe they'd seen it. I think they probably had this curious. It's there. They were there. But they didn't have a billion people that followed Jesus Christ in his church today. They only had a small few people, real disciples. They didn't have the witness of the Holy Spirit yet to convict and draw. That hadn't happened. That time hadn't happened yet, but we do. We're more culpable than they were because we are on this side of Pentecost. We have the resurrection to be a basis of believing that he is who he said he was. So we are more culpable. We have more light. We have seen, we're not only aware of the miracles he did and the fact that you couldn't even count them all, but John says all the miracles Jesus did was done, were written, the whole world couldn't contain the number of books. You know, it's a little bit of a hyperbole, but he's saying he did so much more than we were able to capture and write. But this is more than biblical theology for me. This is my family. This is my life. I've seen this lived out. And I, I just want to share that most people need eternal, all, everybody needs eternal life. But we need forgiveness. We need healing. We need to be filled with the Spirit. And we need deliverance often. So, I want to share some stories with you. Surprise, surprise. Because theology needs to be made in a... I like it this way. The Bible talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God that was known through family. A God that says, your father... His father and his father knew this God. We want to tell you about your grandpa and your great-grandpa and your dad and the stories of our family. Our children need to know your story. Your children need to know your family stories. They need to know about the times of visitation. They need to know the times. They need to know the story. So for me, I want to tell you just a little bit from my family and my life. When I was five years, well, I don't know if I was five, I was four or five years old, 
I was with my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, and she told me a story that affected my life, caused me to be interested in healing, and I wasn't even six years old yet, caused me to want to sit on my great-grandmother's lap and watch Oral Roberts in the tent meeting when he's laying hands on people. Why would a five-year-old be mesmerized by a healing line? But it was. And I think it was because it just wasn't something on television. It was something that God had done to my illiterate maternal grandmother. She had a lot of stories. She married a man that was mean, my maternal grandfather. She married an alcoholic. He's good till he got drunk. And when he got drunk, he tore up the furniture. My mother would hide behind the doors. He and his brother was also an alcoholic, would just go on rampages. He was not only a mean in the sense of when he got drunk, he's mean. He wasn't mean till he got drunk, but he got drunk a lot. But he was also unfaithful. He was a womanizer. He wasn't a Christian. As a matter of fact, my grandmother, when he first met her, wasn't a Christian either. She was playing a guitar and a honky-tonk. And he got her pregnant with my mother while he was married to another woman. And then after he married my grandmother and divorced his first wife, he still was unfaithful. You might say he had some problems. You might say that man was demonized because he was out of control. And I'm just grateful that he died before I'm old enough to remember any of that, memories of that man. I'm grateful that grandma got a new husband. I'm grateful that he was gentle. He was kind. He never drank, never got drunk, never touched another, a woman in unfaithfulness the whole time that he was married to my grandmother. And he never touched her in anger and hurt her. I'm glad that first grandpa died. Never knew him. I'm glad I knew the one that when the little Baptist church would get on his knees and see him crying. Because he who's been forgiven of much loves much. In the amen corner, he was a man of integrity. He took in children that needed help. He just loved Jesus. I love the fact that's the grandfather that I knew and the other one died. He died when I was two years old. Matter of fact, he died the same night my dad died. Together at the altar of Lick Creek General Baptist Church when they were both saved and delivered from the addictions. I got a new grandpa. I tell you, it's not just theology for me. It's part of my family's history. I thank God for the power of the gospel to deliver you from your demons and from your addictions and give you hope. Change your whole character. Make you another man, another woman, a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm mindful of the, when I was a pastoring in seminary and I drove, my church was 100 miles away from my home and I it was a student pastorate in the American Baptist denomination. And one day I was uh, preaching this is a small country church. And I was preaching and I was talking about, you know, I remember my dad giving a testimony. And as he was giving his testimony, he's on the verge of tears. And that's, you know, holy tears is the way my family responds. My mother was a shouter and dad was a crier. But mom cried too. And I say, why is they crying? Are they crying? And they said, they're crying because they're happy. And I didn't understand that when I was a little kid. And he said, well, I don't understand it. And dad said, well, you will one day. When God touches you, you'll understand the connection that you can be crying and be happy. So my dad was testifying. This is what he said. 
I want to live my life in such a way that I would want my three children to walk in my footsteps. And I remember that as a little boy. I remember that. That really touched me. And by the way, we all don't want to live our life in such a way we would want our kids to be able to walk in our footsteps because sad, sad, in some situations, it's sad because our footsteps went where they shouldn't have gone. And we look back over time and they are walking in our footsteps. This same Baptist church that I'm talking about when I was pastoring in, one of the deacons, he, got, he was an alcoholic and he got saved later in life. But his... Whoa. The little girl that was born to him later in life grew up and seeing her dad as this deacon in the Baptist church who really loved God and she was walking in purity and walking in joy and, and following him and was just, you could see her just worshiping God. But his oldest son was an alcoholic too. His oldest son had walked in his footsteps. And now you want to be able to go back and undo that period of time. It's very difficult. So it behooves us as parents to have the fullness of the Spirit and for our kids to see in our house, in our home, integrity and what we say in church and the way we walk and act in the home. There's consistency because hypocrisy is what will turn children off from being in church, following Jesus, if they see hypocrisy in the home. Which means we got to have more than just a one time. I, I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I'm in the church. I'm good. Not necessarily. If there's no change after the prayer, you didn't pray through. If there's no change, no, no change in your life, you're not really born again, in my opinion. If there's no change in your life, if, there's, if, it's, if things went on just as they did before, well, how can the Holy Spirit be in you and not bring about change? So when I said this, I, my dad said, I want, my, I want to walk my life that I can look behind me and my kids could walk in my footsteps. And when I said that, this big woman, like 6'2 and 250 pounds, first time she'd ever been to church, at this little country church, she jumped up and she ran out of the door so hard, she hit the door and it swung back and hit the brick wall. And bam! And I thought, my God, what happened there? Did her dad just die? So I, there's something went on there. So I... I didn't know who she was, so I asked one of the deacons, who was that woman? You know, like 28 years old, very big, tall. And uh, they said, oh, man, you don't want to be around her. I said, what are you talking about? Well, she's got one of the worst reputations this whole county. She's mean. I mean, she beats men up. And that was true. She did. I said, well, I need to go see her. He said, I, I wouldn't. I would be careful on that. So my wife's 5'2 and 90 pounds, 95, still is, and uh, still fits in her wedding dress. And, um, but anyway, uh, I said, I'll take her. She's my protector. And <laughs> so we went to see this woman. Turns out her name was Sue. And Sue, uh, when I sat down and started talking to her, tears filled her eyes. And she said, I said, well, I just need to know what happened. And she said, when you mentioned that about your father, she said, I'm carrying a baby. She wasn't married, but I'm pregnant. I don't want my daughter walking in my footsteps. She said, wait a minute, I want to show you something. So she went and got a, an, al an album, you know, like, she created a scrapbook. That's the one I'm looking for. She has a scrapbook, and it's about a half inch to an inch thick of cuttings from the newspaper of how many times she'd been put in jail for drunk and disorderly conduct, for battery, for assault and battery, for really bad things. And she's had been proud of it. 
She was proud of how mean she was. She slit the tires on people. She kept a butcher knife underneath her car and her seat. She would enter a fight. This was a very mean woman and an alcoholic. Her, all of her brothers were alcoholics. The whole family were alcoholics. And then she said, I want to change. It has to be real. I just don't want to get religion. I, I need to change. I, I want to have a real experience. I don't understand how that works, but I, I want to change. And I don't want to change just so, you know, uh, I'll get a lighter sentence. I want to change because I want to be a different woman. I want to be a different mother. I need power to change because I can't change me. I can't change myself. And so I, 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 and I found out that what she's talking about, she was facing soon a trial because she'd gone to a bachelor party for a groom. Most times that's men that goes to those things. But she went. Her brother was there, and they got in a fight. Her brother with the, 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 these guys. This guy was, was in the Navy, and he's out on leave. He's getting ready to get married. And so she's afraid that they're going to beat her brother to death, Harry. So she went quickly and grabbed the butcher knife out of the, underneath her seat, ran into the fight, and stabbed, turned out stabbed the groom. I went and bought her a book called Cross and Switchblade that she could read it. A real easy book to read of the modern translation of the Bible and Run Baby Run by Nikki Cruz. And I gave her those books because um, she's going to have to going to be sentenced. And, uh, but she started coming to church. She's trying to make a change but she knows that she can't do it by her willpower. But you can see she's really serious about wanting to be a different person. But she really wants to be truly born again too. And, 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 and so I wrote a letter to the judge. I mailed it to him and I was there for the day of her sentencing. And the, and the judge said, um, is Reverend Clark here? I was really young. I was like 23, 24 I said, yes, I am. He said, based upon your letter about what's going on in her life, I would re not sentence her. But then he pulled up her rap sheet. He said, if I gave her no sentence, the family would feel like there was no justice. So what I'm going to do, instead of sentencing her to 60 years, I'm going to sentence her to 60 days in the women's penitentiary of Indiana. And when she gets out, you take care of her. <laughs> Didn't say it that way. He said, I'll put her in one know. So anyway, every weekend I would go up to my wife and I would drive up to Indianapolis Women's Penitentiary and I'd try to share the gospel with her. And I'd say, well, do you want to pray the prayer and give your life? <clears throat> no, I do, but I, 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 I don't understand it all yet. And I, I don't think I'm ready yet, but I, I do, but, I'm, it, isn't, but not, not this weekend. And I, I know for 60 days. And then near the end of her sentence of 60 days, I, I, I'm there, and the, day, the moment she walked through the door, I knew she's been born again. Her countenance was different. She, I mean, I, I knew it before she told me, but I didn't say it. I wanted her to tell me. And, and she says, you know, I, I've been forgiven. I got saved. I said, well, I know, but you never did would pray it with me. So how did it happen? She says, well, you know, there was that prayer in the back of the book. And I said, I'm going to pray this. She said, I prayed that. And my shame and my guilt, I felt it lift. And I felt a peace and I felt a love. I, 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 I knew something changed to me. And I said, okay, let me ask you something, Sue. How do you, why do you think you have assurance of salvation? I mean, just tell me, why do you think you're saved? I'm just curious. She said, because I'm so happy. I'm praying for the man I stabbed. 
I want him, I want his family to know this Jesus like I do. I thought, yep, I think you're saved. <laughs> she got out of the, she got out of the, the prison and the day she got out of the prison, she'd already set it up. When I, first day out, first Sunday out after church, we had a little river right behind the church. She said, I want you to baptize me in that river. I said, okay. So it's first Sunday out. Up on the bank of the river is her mom and dad with their problems. And all of her brothers with their problems. Addicted to alcohol. Dysfunctional family. And she got baptized. Within one year, she's a Sunday school teacher in that church. Within one year, her, two of her brothers that were alcoholics that day she was baptized, they got saved and they were filled with the Spirit and they became deacons in that little Baptist church before I left. And the kingdom of God came into that family and there's going to be a time that they can say, and by the way, every Christmas for like 20 years, she'd send me a picture of her and her little girl that became a young woman. And I remember in, the, in prison, though, one of the last conversations we had, in, the last conversation we had in prison before she got out, she said, there's just one thing. I have really messed my life up. I got a rap sheet. I got felonies. I, I am a mess. I just don't know how God's going to put my life back together. And she said, you know, she weighed about 250, 6'2", big. Was, wouldn't win a beauty contest. Um, she said, look at me. What man's going to want me? How am I ever going to have a family, a husband? And I, I said in faith, I believe if you put God first, he will bring you a husband. You put God first, and he'll put your life back together. And he did. This is the salvation that they can talk about in their family when they were delivered by the power of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Healing for me, it started, I mentioned it earlier, my grandma. We were in a, she had a little like 700 square foot block home. They were very poor. And um, two little bedrooms, I mean, really little. And I was standing by her, and she was cleaning the floor. And she stopped, and she said, Honey, I want to tell you a story. Your grandma was right here when she heard the audible voice of God tell her, Mary Magdalene, that was her name, Mary Magdalene, if you will go into the other bedroom and pray, I will heal that large goiter in your throat. They didn't know how to heal goiters at that time. So she said, she took me by the hand. Come here, I want to show you. Walk me about this far. <laughs> and now we're in the other bedroom. Right by that, one of those big pole beds, you know. She said, right here, your grandma was standing right here. I heard it, I heard his voice. I believed it. I obeyed it. I came in here. I began to pray. And it felt like a hot hand went down my throat and that goiter disappeared. That story of a Jesus that's alive who just didn't heal, he still heals, caused a boy to have a real interest and faith that Jesus Christ could heal because he healed grandma. Now, I struggled when my grandfather at 16, when I was 16, he died 62 years, 64 years old of cancer, um, bone cancer and all. It was really hard. We had everybody praying for him because I didn't understand it. God healed grandma. And when my Sunday school teacher, Imogene, who had a sixth grade education, but man, she loved Jesus. Do you know what? Sometimes how much you know of the Bible is not as important as how much you know of the God of the Bible. 
And I mean, Imogene mean, had a poor education and, and she didn't really like reading a lot because it's hard for her to read. And I never had a pastor who had more than eighth grade education when I was 16 years old. And, 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 and so I grew up in that environment. And, but I'd had some Sunday school teachers say, oh, they're all right. But Imogene, she couldn't teach Sunday school without crying about how much she loved Jesus. And when she'd cry, my heart would melt. I never doubted it. Boy, this woman, she knows this God. He's real to her. And then she got cancer. And I remember the church is praying for her. This is before grandpa got cancer. Church is praying for her. Baptist church praying for her. And uh, they went in to do the surgery. She had a, a, a tumor uh, um, bigger than a melon. It was kind of like like uh, you put it in a wash foot basin that you wash your feet in. That's what it was. But the church was praying. And when they went in to do the surgery, that tumor had sh shrunk to the size of an orange. And when they opened her up, it wasn't attached to anything and it just fell out. And it wasn't like that before. I wished I could say I had a lot more experiences. I didn't. That was pretty much it as far as in my church life until I was, you know, 18 years old. So I believe that God healed because he healed my grandmother and he healed my Sunday school teacher. They were both older and they were both, as a boy looking at them, saintly. So my theology of healing is if you're older and you really love Jesus, and you're walking close to Jesus, you could get healed. That's my theology as a kid. At 18 years old, Vietnam War is going strong, 1970. Um, I got into the wrong crowd. I got saved at 16, the Sunday before my 16th birthday, actually. And I'll never forget it. The guy got up and it was a really bad sermon just reading from a, a, a anyway. <laughs> the benefits of salvation is kind of like an insurance policy and and, uh, and that was what these, it really wasn't even out of the Bible. It was just some um, track, thank you. Some track. And you know, in, in a little, little Baptist church, there was only three people that weren't saved. Me, my younger brother, and my sister, everybody else is saved. So if you give an invitation, you know what they're thinking about. You know, you know who they're, you know who this invitation's for. And, and sometimes we had a mourner's bench theology, and which I thought was the old time religion. And I got to seminary, I found out it was the new measures under Finney. But anyway, um, so sometimes they would do the handshake. So after the invitation. If you didn't come to the altar and give your life to Jesus, they had a handshake. Everybody in the church is going to go right by the front. And the preacher's going to be here. You're going to shake his hand. going to be a deacon here and a deacon here. And, and then my grandfather's there too. He's a trustee. And the, the point is, we're going to get you close to the altar. I mean, you're standing right above the altar. All you got to do is drop your knee now. We got you right here. It's kind of helping things out. Helping the Holy Spirit out a little bit. And... Uh, but, and, and so I, for years, I had prayed before I got saved. Since seven years old, I started crying when the all invitations would start. And I'd roll over in the seat because I was young enough to be a kid pretending to be asleep. I just didn't want people to see me crying. And when I got older, I'd sit in the back and I'd grab my hands and, and hold on to that seat and say, oh God, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be one yet. And, and God, I do want to give my life to you one day, so I don't want you to quit bothering me. I, I don't want you to, you know, to stop, but I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to cry. God, I don't want to cry in public. I don't want to, I don't want to cry. Don't make me cry. And then after, by the time I was 14 or 15, I could hear a sermon on the gospel. He might as well have been reading the newspaper. A dry eye, no conviction, no knocking at my heart. And I knew this was really bad. Because every time you say no to God, it's like laying a layer over your heart. 
to harden it and laying a layer over your ear to make it more difficult to hear. And I remembered, I was getting scared because I was, you know, like 16 and, and I was, um, so I prayed, God, my problem is my pride. I don't want to cry in public. I don't, I, I'm afraid I won't know how to explain to my brother and sister what's happening. So God, my issue is I am proud. I don't want to cry. So Lord, and when I, I tell you to leave me alone when you convict me in church and you, you, you've been leaving me alone and I, I, you know, I know I can't come to you any, any moment I want to because the flesh won't want to. I mean, it's, you don't just get to decide I'm going to become a Christian. God has to be drawing you. It's a supernatural, divine experience. God, the Father, has to draw before you can say. The, Wesley talked about prevenient grace. The grace that comes to you before you experience the grace of forgiveness is the grace of conviction. When he gives you faith that if you would repent, you would be saved. He gives you that faith. He draws you. It's just, this is all the grace of God even before you experience the grace of salvation. So I'm praying, Lord, Listen to this prayer. This is the one I really mean. <laughs> Convict me so strong you break my will. Convict me so strong I can't say no. I, pray in a, I was an Armenian praying a Calvinist prayer. <laughs> God, I want you to convict me so strong that literally I just can't say no. Because in my heart, I want to say yes. But it's this pride and it's, you know, this deception, all that I'm under. So, Lord, next time, if, whenever, if you convict me again, because I, I haven't been feeling anything for almost a year now. If I tell you to leave me alone, don't do it. Listen to this one. This is the one I really mean. Shortly after that, I was in this little country church about Seat about 30 people, one room, really, really poor church. My great uncle's Down syndrome. He was my play partner. He had, I had the mental development of about a nine year old, 10 year old, his uncle Reno. He stuttered really bad. It's funny how God will get you, set you up. This night, in the service, Uncle Reno stood up and said, I saved. Holy Spirit goes. Tears in my eyes. And then they give the invitation. Then they do the handshake. Don't you want to receive Jesus tonight? I want to receive Jesus, but not tonight. The preacher, don't you want to receive Jesus, Randy, tonight? I want to receive Jesus, not tonight. The other deacon, same thing. I was so grateful. My grandpa was over there. And so I went over and stood by grandpa in the amen corner on the front row. And Sister Imogen, my Sunday school teacher, came over. What a setup. <laughs> Holy Spirit. She put her arm around my shoulder and whispered in my ear, Honey, don't you know how much Jesus loves you? I lost it. <laughs> One week away from being 16. I am blubbering, weeping, and I ran to the altar. Now, our theology is you stay there, you confess every sin that you feel, you feel guilty, God shows you, and you pray through until the guilt leaves, until the shame leaves, and the joy comes, and the peace comes, and nobody's got to tell you you just got saved because you know you got saved because you have the witness of the Spirit and that transformation. And I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and then it happened. Wow. Everything changes. It's brighter in the room. The people look better. Everything's better. And I can't wait to get in the car and go tell my grandparents, what it, another, my Clark grandparents, what had happened in my life. I'm so glad he answered that first prayer. I'm so glad he broke my pride. I'm so glad he's set me free. I'm so glad. I know what it's like to be born again.
I'm so glad that the God who saved my grandpa saved me. I'm so glad that he not only has a story, but I have a story. I'm so glad that the God who saved my grandpa the same night he saved my dad, and my dad was, his dad was a sailor in World War II, and he cussed like a sailor. And my dad grew up with every sentence had foul language in it. My dad grew up with just SOB that and GD this, and, and I mean, and, and a bunch of other letters I could throw in, I won't. And uh, I mean, that's just the way he talked. And he told me, he said, when I got saved, the hardest thing for me to get victory over it was the language that I had learned to stop cussing was really a, a, a big hard thing for me because that just all he knew. But I knew him differently. But he told me this was my battle. So grandma, I knew she'd been healed. I'm a gene. I knew she'd been healed. So in 1970, when I'm 18 years old, and I've been going to church, been doing really, really well, I became a hypocrite. And I fell into sin with the wrong crowd. And for 11 months, about 11 months, I'm still in the Baptist Youth Fellowship. I'm supposed to be one of the leaders in it. But I'm a hypocrite. I go to church two times on Sunday and once on Wednesday, every week. But I'm also um, misbehaving with my girlfriend and getting stoned every day that summer. I did not doubt the reality of God. I just wanted to take a short trip into the far off country and be a prodigal for a while. And say, well, then why did you stay in church? Because I was afraid. You know, if I'd been a Calvinist, I wouldn't have been afraid. I would have known that, you know, he'll bring me back. But I wasn't. I was Arminian. So I was afraid I could get so deep in sin that I couldn't find my way home. I want, I didn't, I knew, I don't want to stay out here. Because I knew that actually I was happier when I was close to God. I knew I was happier when I wasn't a hypocrite. Because, listen, I want you to know there are hypocrites in the church and there are hypocrites in the bar. People in the bar that's backslidden, they're, they're a hypocrite sinner. They're pretending to be happy when they're not. They're pretending to be something they're really not. And so you've got this double hypocrite thing going on. I don't see anybody, I'm not going to go to a bar. There's some hypocrites down in those bars. They're just pretending to have fun. You know, like we In the middle of being backslidden, goodness and mercy, one of the sheepdogs got on my trail. I'm, I'm at the hangout where they bring out the car and put the thing on your car and you order your, you know, and I'm to where I'm at and I got Steppenwolf playing loud as it'll go. And they had this song called GD, the Pusher Man. And I got as loud as it'd go. And here come goodness and mercy, the sheepdogs. And it's one of my former girlfriends, her brother was a holiness preacher, young guy. I really respected him. I, re I would go listen to him teach on healing. First only preacher ever teach on healing. And he saw me. He came back. He'd been a missionary out with Native Americans. And he saw me there. And I had long hair. And I, you know, didn't. You know, it's 1970. And he came to my house the next day and met my mother. Said, would you leave Randy a message? Yeah. Would you tell him I saw him last night at Dickerson's? That's the place. I just didn't seem like the Randy I knew. goodness and mercy I hunted him down he's preaching a little Baptist church Lick Creek I went went to his home wanted to rededicate and a few weeks after that I come to this thing God I just can't live this anymore it had slipped out because we were I had a new Chevelle Supersport 396 4 speed 
350 horse positive track, the original muscle, one of the muscle cars. An 18 year old should not have that. But I was working in the oil field, so I had a pretty good job in the summer with my dad. And I'm in the car with my friends and there's the glory cloud that has a sweet smell of incense was really thick in the car. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And they're saying, what do you want to do? You know, what do you want to do? I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to Canada. I'm not going to Vietnam. Another one said, I want to have all the drugs I want. Another one wanted something other than drugs. And I heard myself say, not intending to say it, I'm going to be a preacher. When those words came out of my mouth, because I had never thought I wanted to be a preacher. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to be a preacher. I don't know where that, I mean, uh, I'm, you know, it's like one of those things where you're like, ah, get those words back in there. That embarrassed me in that context to say such a thing. And they said, what? I said, and I really realized I just spoke the truth in my life. And I've been living a lie. I went to the youth leader. I said, here's my drugs. I'm going to break up with my girlfriend. I'm going to quit sinning. I'm coming back to God. That's on Sunday night. Four days later, driving home from college, my second best friend, Joan, on my right in the bucket seat, his sister behind him, and my cousin who hated Christians because they had a really bad experience with kind of a really not a healthy, radical form of Pentecostal and didn't believe in medicine that had caused the family to deteriorate. And uh, he's in the back, but he's mad at me because I was the one who had the money to buy the drugs with and supply them and my friends. Clark, you know, if we had a wreck right now, you'd die and go to hell. My next best friend, Joe, said, that's right, you would. And I looked at him and said, no, I wouldn't. Four days ago, I got right with God. What about you? Within five minutes, I'm hit by a car who's trying to pass me and lost control of his car, slid into mine. I went from about here to that pole and hit a concrete embankment. And I was almost killed. And Joe was. He went through the windshield. Lots of terrible damage to his body and neck, broken neck. And I discovered something in the next few days. This God who healed saintly older women, grandmothers, and Sunday school teachers. He would heal me who have just come out of a backslidden lifestyle and I don't deserve it. I am not saintly. When I first started preaching, I, I knew who I was. I'm the prodigal son. It's just come home. And I'd, I'd, I'd preach on Luke 15 and I'd really focus on the prodigal son. But after 50 years, 45 years, I was up in a place in Washington State, in Seattle actually. And uh, I was praying. About 40 people came up for a certain condition. And I asked the Spirit to come start healing them. And the first two people got healed. As I got closer to them, I could smell the alcohol. I realized these are street people and they're probably in bondage to alcohol. And I'm shocked because they're the first two people got healed. And it confused me because these are all, you know, the others are much better. They look better, they smell better, they act better. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, the fact that you're shocked that I healed these two first means you've become the older brother now. You used to see yourself as the prodigal come home. But now you have become the elder brother. I said, I got it, God, I got it. I understand it. I, I, thank you, Lord, for teaching me that lesson. I'm The next night I'm in the inner city at a vineyard church. And as I'm preaching, I'm interrupted by somebody behind me. Hey, hey, you, hey, you, hey. Hey, I turn around. I mean, you don't say that. You're not supposed to interrupt the preacher. 
And there's a, a guy with long hair, down, gray hair down to his waist named Charlie. And this black woman, a big woman. I turned and I said, yes. She, What's your name? I said, my name's not important. I named Jesus. That's the important name. She said, yeah, yeah, I know about that, but what's your name? I said, my name's Randy. And we'd just seen this young woman get healed. Will your Lord, will your God do for me what he just did for her? I said, I think he will. Come here. She got up and started walking toward me. And as she's walking toward me, I'm feeling the love of God, not the love of Randy. I'm feeling the love of God. And I look at her and I know, oh boy, here's, she's from the street too. And I realized, I didn't get it. God, if I'd gotten it, you wouldn't have set me up twice in a row. I re you're really trying to get me to understand the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. And as I'm talking to her, my eyes are filling with tears. And I feel his love for her. And I tell her, tell her about how Jesus loved you know, even the people from the street and the prostitutes. And just, you know, they felt comfortable to come toward him and be near him. And I said, so why do you need to be healed? She said, my butt. And the church did what you did. They laughed. And she said, hey, my butt does hurt. It's bruised. I got hit by a Jeep. It ran into me, running my butt, and I've got bruises, and it hurts. And then somebody ran a cart into me. My butt hurts. Now I'm thinking, laying on of hands. <laughs> She's big, big woman. So I got a word of wisdom. Hey, Izzy, you and your friend just got healed? Come on down here. I need your help. So Izzy and her friend came down. They'd just been healed the night before and that morning. And uh, I said, Izzy, put your hands on this side. Your friend, put your hands on this side. So we got both cheeks covered now. <laughs> I'm standing here. Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> she fell over the street. I don't know how long she's going to be out. So I go ahead and start the sermon. Some about five minutes into the sermon. Hey! Hey, hey! Hey, you! Yeah? What am I doing in the floor? Why did you push me? I said, well, first of all, I wasn't one praying for you the two girls behind you were. And if they'd pushed you, you'd come forward. We wouldn't have gone backwards because they were pushing, they were on this side. Well, what am I doing in the floor? And I was going to try and figure out how to tell her, but before I could, she's, oh my God. Oh my God. And then she got up. She... People. My butt doesn't hurt anymore. And she turned around, headed toward the back door and said, come on, Charlie, let's go. And they, they left. <laughs> There's a lot of people that need Jesus. There's a lot of people in Austin that don't know him. And for some of them, the way to, for them to come to Christ is not going to be so much after this life, what's going to happen? For some of them, they just they know he can help me now. He can set me free now. He can loose my bondages now. He could bring healing to me now. He could heal me emotionally and heal me physically. He could fill me with the Holy Spirit and give me the power to do the things I can't do and stop doing the things I haven't been able to stop doing. We have many reasons to present Jesus to people who need Jesus is try to figure out what do they need and how is Jesus going to be the answer to that need. I believe that there's people here that, and people may be watching, that as we've talked a little bit about why Jesus had to die, now that you know the answers, some of the answers, you know, my book's got 16 answers, this is just three or four. But Jesus died to be 
come the blessing that we need in our life. When my wife was touched by the Holy Spirit in our Baptist church, she was head, assistant head bookkeeper of bank. Two weeks afterwards, I go into the bank and her friends, Randy, come here. I went around the corner. They said, what happened to your wife? I said, what do you mean, what happened to my wife? Well, she's different. I mean, she wants to open up the bank with prayer. She's asked the president of the bank, can I open up the bank with prayer? She's talking about Jesus all the time. She never was like that before. What happened to your wife? On the way home, I asked her that question. I said, this is what your friend said. How, do you, how would you answer? She said, well, before, I knew him. I knew Jesus. And I knew I was forgiven of my sins. And I could talk about that. But now, I know him as the man who healed my tormenting pictures of my dad dying two weeks ago that I couldn't get out of my mind that I was literally on a physical leave from work facing surgery for TMJ because of the stress and all the trauma that had happened and I know him as the one who healed me physically and emotionally and he filled me with joy and she just said before I had something I could talk about but I have a whole lot more I can talk about now Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.